The American Health Care Act, the Republican replacement for Obamacare, represents a triumph of principle and good sense. Either that or it's a complete catastrophe. With us today, guests who see it both ways. John Podhoritz and Ovik Roy on Uncommon Knowledge Now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Having received an undergraduate degree from MIT and an MD from Yale, Ovik Roy decided to become a journalist. Dr. Roy is the opinion editor of Forbes Online and the founder and director of a new think tank in Austin, Texas, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. A graduate of the University of Chicago, John Podhoritz has been a journalist for an unbroken three and a half decades, nearly unbroken, the break occurring when he spent a year as a speechwriter in the Reagan White House. Mr. Podhoritz is now the film reviewer for the Weekly Standard, a co-host of the GLOP podcast, you heard that correctly, the GLOP podcast, and the editor-in-chief of Commentary Magazine. Ovik and John, welcome. Thank you. Great to be with you. A lifelong dream. Uh, well, happy to make dreams come true, Ovik. <laughs> dream I, was, I was watching Uncommon Knowledge in my dorm room in the 90s, and I thought, I, if, I, if I really make it big, then I'll, I'll know I'll made it big if I made it on Peter Robinson's show. And here I am. You're here, baby. <laughs> I love it. Downhill from this moment. <laughs> Writing about the American Health Care Act in the New York Post, John Podhoritz. This is a question directed to you, John's words. Barack Obama and the Democrats may have lost the House in 2010, the Senate in 2014, and the presidency in 2016, but they may be winning the most important argument they've ever made. Close quote. Before we get to your rebuttal, explain what you're talking about there. I think that the... Uh release of the American Health Care Act, the Republican effort to start taking on Obamacare, showed uh, the, the way Republicans talked about it, both positively and negatively, showed that a Rubicon may have been crossed since the passage of Obamacare in 2010. And the Rubicon is a kind of common, unspoken, almost unspoken acceptance of the idea that there should be universal coverage for health care in the United States. That was never a conservative or Republican goal. It's not the right goal, but in conceding it or in seeming to accept it implicitly, not necessarily in the drafting of this law, but in the way congressmen went on TV to talk about the law and to defend it or attack it, um, that concession means that in the largest picture, Obama might have won the larger argument about where healthcare is going in the United States, which is to say, if Republicans cannot defend the idea that what is important is the freedom of the individual to make choices about how to live his life, as opposed to the notion that we are all in this together and must all participate in healthcare to ballast each other's healthcare outcomes, um, then we have accepted uh, an essential social democratic principle, and that's a huge concession. Barack Obama argued that it is the responsibility of the government to provide every American with healthcare, and the American Healthcare Act, the Republican proposal to replace Obamacare, ratifies 
that, that decision. And everything else is details. Ovik? So what John just articulated is the conventional conservative view, that universal coverage is a great defeat for conservatism and a victory for progressivism. Uh, I way, take could, a can I just view. say, that's the first time I've ever heard John called a conventional conservative. But I, th go ahead. I think he would agree that that's a conventional conservative okay. view. Uh, I, I think that conventional view is wrong and represents a failure of imagination of conservatism. I know, uh, Peter, that you keep uh, Friedrich Hayek close to your heart. I do as well, actually quite literally, because here on my iPhone, I've got the Constitution of Liberty and the Road to Serfdom on my Kindle app. And if you read the Constitution of Liberty or the Road to Serfdom, you'll see that Friedrich Hayek actually supported universal coverage. He actually talked about how in wealthy societies, like he was referring to post-war Britain at the time, there is actually a case, an affirmative case to be made that the economic security that comes from basic health insurance for everyone is actually a worthy goal that if it's done in a market-oriented way, uh, it can actually be done with very low costs, but a great deal of economic security and, and adequate health care leads to uh, a better society. So he supported uh, universal coverage. And in fact, the United States doesn't have a free market health care system, didn't before Obamacare. The thing that we've done, and this has not raised the hackles so much of conservatives, is we heavily subsidize health care for the wealthy through the tax break for employer-based coverage, which is a regressive tax break that helps the upper middle class. You and I, Peter and John, we pay taxes so that Mitt Romney and Warren Buffett and Hillary Clinton can get government-subsidized health care called Medicare. Uh, you don't see Rand Paul and Ted Cruz raising a lot of objections to that. Instead, they're raising objections to uh, health insurance for low-income uninsured people. And I wish we in the conservative movement would say, you know what? But hold, hold on, let me just, <clears throat> let me get one point very explicitly here. You're granting John's argument. You're saying, yes, 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 it's over. Everybody now agrees that it's the responsibility of the government to provide universal health care, but that's not such a bad thing. Uh, but you I, are granting the premise, aren't you? I wrote a, a, a cover story for the Washington Examiner a few years ago called The Conservative Case for Universal Coverage. Okay. And my argument was, uh, and this is based on data, we could spend a fraction, we could spend one-seventh of what we spend on health care in America in terms of government spending, in terms of overall public and private health spending, and cover everybody in this country or provide the right kind of safety net that provides the, uh, the level of financial assistance that lower-income people really need. If we just stopped subsidizing health insurance for upper-income people, if we just did that, we'd spend a fraction of what we spend. We wouldn't have a budget deficit. We wouldn't have an entitlement crisis. We've done it all wrong. The reason why all these problems exist is because we've spent all of our resources subsidizing health insurance for upper-income people. I'm going to ask this question one more time. I'm not even disagreeing with anything you're right. saying, but I just want to get to the premise here. Right. So I think John will argue, and John is more more than capable of amending or correcting my statement of his position. But John would argue that Obamacare changed the relationship of the state to the citizen in a fundamental way. And I would totally disagree with that. Never before, let me, let me, let me, let me state it though, never before had the government of the federal government claimed the right to force, to use its coercive powers to force citizens to do something just because they were breathing. And you are saying... I am, I'm not. So I agree that the individual mandate was a constitutional injury, and I totally disagree with the Supreme Court uh, decision uh, by but John there Roberts. Is no way to, to, there is no way... Okay, so but, really, but, but there is no way, there is no route to universal health care absent coercion. Is uh, that I, not correct? Uh, no. well, well, okay. I would, I would actually argue that Ovik is right and that, and that 
sure I'm trying to stick sure up for you, no, and no, you're no. taking me no, out at the but knees. But there is a way. There right. is a way. All right. And the way is single-payer health well, insurance, so, but, government-provided health insurance, and the creation of a government system of health care in which, largely speaking, the medical profession works for the government and supplies its supplies its services. Canadian to the system, individual. National Health Service in the, Britain, it pretty exists. Much. It's, okay. and by the way, it's constitutionally sound. It's something would be passed by legislation. It's not. There's no constitutional issue with single payer. It's just that it's inimical, as I understand it. It's inimical. It's the nationalization of the healthcare system. It's inimical to our political to the American political experiment. But I think that this is where we're going inevitably. In part, let me just follow up on this. In this sense, which is, uh, Ovik is absolutely right that the, you know, the original sin of our healthcare system was the decision to create the employer tax break in 1946. Just as you could say that the original sin of our um, real estate market was the decision to make mortgage deduction. Yeah, m was to make the deductibility of home mortgages, which again is a regressive break that helps the more the richer you are and the more larger a mortgage you get, the better a break you get from the government. The problem we have is that this is where we are. You know, right. if we could go back in time and read and and start from zero and redesign from the ground up, we, we know all these we know all these things about the moral hazards of these using using the tax system in this terrible way, but we can't. So we have to build from where we are, and that's part of the problem with the American Healthcare Act. Obviously, is that Paul Ryan and the president and Tom Price, the Health and Human Service Secretary, looked at this and said. What can we do that is practicable in 2017? What adjustments can we make that can get through the Senate with 51 votes instead of 60? What can we do here and there? Right. Because that's the reality that they face. But I think in overarching terms, if we are looking at this and saying, what must be satisfied is that Americans get health care, we get to Ovik's point, and the only way we get there eventually is not through the ways that he would want it, it's through single payer. Okay, I would like to respond by asking you, John, mm -hmm. a hypothetical question. And it's a very hypothetical question. Yeah. Let's say in 2010, hypothetically, we'd passed a law that reduced federal spending by $10 trillion over three decades, reduced taxes by $2 trillion over three decades, had no individual mandate, but ended up resulting in 20 million more people having health insurance because health insurance premiums went down by 25%. This is admittedly a hypothetical scenario. But if that combination of reforms, less spending, less taxes, less regula fewer regulations, led to more people having health insurance, would that have been a defeat for conservatism? No, but you're missing, but no. no but, but so, yeah. so, so I'm glad you said that because this is the problem with the failure of imagination of conservatism is that we've conflated a policy outcome, more people having health insurance, with the process by which we achieve that outcome. And the point I'm trying to make is that we conservatives, we have always known that less government leads to more abundance, more wealth, more prosperity. We would never say we need more government so that every American can have a smartphone. We would never say we need more government so that every American can have a job. And yet we've accepted the left-wing narrative that the only way to make sure that more people have the economic security of health insurance is through more statism. Why do we accept that narrative in healthcare when we accept it nowhere else in the economy? And this has been the failure of imagination so, of conservatism. Okay, let, let me, let me, uh, again, a simple question. I hope the answer. So here's the simple question. You believe then that if the American Health Care Act 
If the, if the Republican replacement for Obamacare is enacted largely as it is being talked about as we sit here today, that will lead to an increase in liberty. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying the American Health Care Act is the hypothetical right. example. I'm saying uh, that the there are example. policies. So my think tank, the we Foundation could do for better. Research on right, Equal Opportunity, has published uh, a proposal uh, that it's called Transcending Obamacare. You can download from our website that actually, based on our estimates, which are, of course, estimates, would do exactly what I described. They would deregulate the insurance market, reduce federal spending, reduce federal taxes, but increase the number of people with health insurance because we stop, okay. we, we dedicate our scarce resource to the people who need the help and not to the people who don't need it. So okay. the two of you, as best I can tell, agree on the conservative principle that the government ought not to use coercion to achieve universal health care. You're suspicious that we can survive, that there's any way of acting on that. You disagree by saying, no, no, there are ways we could increase liberty and health care at the same time, right? Exactly. Okay, hold that thought. We'll come back to it. But as we sit here today, tomorrow a vote is scheduled in the House of Representatives, the American Health Care Act. You're in the House. Do you vote for it or not? Uh, I would not vote for it as a matter of general principle. If I am a Republican congressman, I'm going to vote for it for political reasons. Okay. Fair answer. Fair answer. Ovik? I would vote for it with deep misgivings about certain aspects of the bill. Let me ask again another couple of questions about the very nature of health care. I talked to someone whom I'd better not quote because he didn't know I was intending to, but he's, this is someone who's close to Democratic members of the Senate. And here's the calculation the Democrats are making right now. Stand back. Have nothing to do with this bill. Let the Republicans push it through and become, let it be theirs, let them own it, because this is going to be so unpopular. Premiums will rise, it's going to cause so much trouble that we, the Democrats, will have a chance to come back in the midterms, take seats in the House, recapture the Senate. Which is, roughly speaking, just what the Republicans were thinking when the Democrats enacted Obamacare. Back then, the Democrats were wrong. They thought, in time, Obamacare would become popular. It didn't become popular. So we have this strange situation in which professional politicians, the Democrats are making one calculation, the Republicans are making the opposite calculation, and furthermore, they've changed places since Obamacare was enacted. Can I just ask, is, is it the case is it the case that it is the very nature of healthcare that it is always going to prove so complicated and so disappointing because we will all get sick and we will all die and the ultimate outcome is always going to be a failure that whatever political party most associates itself with healthcare is making a big mistake. You they know, should push it out to the private sector for political reasons. John. You know, in 2011, in Commentary Magazine, Tevi Troy published an article about how healthcare had been a 20-year disaster for Democrats. Democrats had essentially invented the healthcare issue as a national issue really around 1990 or 91. That's what's interesting about how it's become one of the, the predominant domestic political issue of our time. It's not as though people didn't get sick and die before 1991. There was a Senate race in 1991. Harris Wofford was running against Richard Thornburg in a special election in Pennsylvania. And a newly minted consultant named James Carville suggested to Wofford that they should run this race on health care. 
Wofford won the race in a, in a surprise upset victory, talking about the disastrous healthcare system. And in 92, Bill Clinton took on healthcare as a major issue, became a national issue. And if you look at what happened over the course of those 20 years, Clinton care, Hillary care was a disaster for Democrats. It lost them the House um, and Senate in, 19, uh, in 1994, uh, the House. Um, uh, the only bill, you know, then Obamacare did terrible things to the, you know, passed in March of 2010. And that's when I said the, uh, that you quoted at the beginning. They lost the House in 2010. They lost the Senate in 2014. They lost the presidency in 2016. All of which, which Obamacare was materially involved in. Now, it's a dynamic process now. That's what's interesting is that you said Obamacare is not popular. You're right. It was very unpopular. When it started to become, when it started to be apparent that the healthcare system was going to change with a Republican Congress and a Republican president, and people started saying, oh, what are you going to replace it with? And voters started getting nervous. Its numbers have climbed. Now, it's not a wildly popular, it's not wildly popular, but it is not the toxic stew that it was at the beginning. And so I think there is great merit we in the idea that the, if you touch it, if you touch it, although you're in trouble. Although, in 2003, the heated objection of conservative Republicans who were very upset about it, the White House and the Republican leadership in Congress put, muscled through Medicare Part D, the prescription drug benefit for, for the elderly, which has proved to be a wildly popular piece of legislation that kind of fits okay. Ovik's model, which is to say that its basis is universal coverage, that is to say if you are 65 or older, you get Medicare Part D if you want it, and you are, and, and, and nonetheless, and it, it does what it was supposed to do. It hasn't hasn't led to wild increases in drug prices. It's actually helped to moderate the market and all that. So in theory, but the thing about the Medicare drug benefit is that it was, it was ab initio. It came out, it, it was its own thing. It came out of, it was a new thing. Mm -hmm. And so it was designed based on knowledge of a lot of the previous mistakes that had been made to make sure that it wasn't a, you know, a, 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 monstro a monstrous jalopy con constructed out of horrible things. The problem with where we are now is anything you do to the healthcare system, you know, in, in theory, it would be fantastic to literally expunge where we are and start, you know, from zero. But it, it cannot which was, happen. Which is the spirit. That's what people felt, I think. It's, you could argue that's what people felt Trump meant when he said repeal and replace. It may right. be what Trump thought he meant. And now it turns out, wait a minute, you can't touch this. You can't do that because of the reconciliation process. You can't do that. Well, there's Ovik that, argued there those they, could, they could still yeah. do better than they're doing. So back to you, Ovik. Is it the case that whoever becomes associated with health care, you've already argued in effect that people could do a good job with health care, that it could be a political winner. Is the Republican Party, supposing this bill actually gets enacted, is the Republican Party going to regret it in 2018? If this bill is, they will. And, you know, going back wow. to, to the question you just asked, I, I think there are certain things worth losing elections for. Real entitlement reform, real reform of the system that may be unpopular in certain quarters, but over the long term results in a better system that's more affordable for the country, for the taxpayer, for the individual struggling with his health insurance bills. That would be worth it. That's worth losing elections for. Does, is this bill right. worth losing elections for? Rearranging the debt shares on the Titanic However, is not It's a complicated not issue because you have the 
You have the issue of the bill, and then you have the politics of the bill. So put aside and be cynical and put aside the qualities, both positive and negative, about the bill. For whatever reason and for whatever reason it happened, Donald Trump and Paul Ryan decided that this was going to be the first thing that they were going to do, right? So Trump said, I want, I want to repeal and replace on the first day. Ryan said, okay, we're going to go through this first. They designed this bill. They're in the House of Representatives, and yet they design a bill that's designed to pass muster in the Senate, which was, I think, a... Oh, I don't which know about was that. A, but you know what I mean. It was designed to be the, a bill that, in theory, could go right to the Senate and would and would have these features that made it possible for it to be passed with 51 votes and not 60, right? So they decided to go first. Once they decided to go first and Trump said, this is my bill, then you have to pass his it. presidency hinges on the passage of this bill. I don't, I don't think it's too much to say that even no. though it's so early. Yes no, no. When I mean, has a president that we can think of lost his first major ask? You know when? Jimmy Never. Carter. Well, Jimmy, Jimmy Carter. Carter. Well, Jimmy Carter. I'm trying to think of what his first. Uh, that's his hard. first major. It took him a couple of years to turn against him. Right. I'm just saying, like right. he, there is Trump. He says, "I'm coming to Washington to change things. I'm a winner. They're all losers. I know how to do things. I know how to make deals." He comes in. He's got a Republican House and a Republican Senate, and he cannot get his first piece Two of quotations. legislation. Two through. quotations. He is. His throat is cut. All right, boys, this leads us to the state of the Republican Party. Ovik Roy, in an interview with Fox this past summer, quote, the Republican coalition has inherited the people who opposed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The Southern Democrats, who are now Republicans, conservatives and Republicans have not come to terms with that. Close quote. Now, Ovik, history. Whereas in 1964, only about 70% of Democrats in the House and Senate supported the 64 Act, 80%, a little over 80% of Republicans supported the act. So how is it the case that the Republican Party gets this, gets tarnished with this accusation that they opposed the 1964 act, and how is it that the Republican Party becomes the new home over four decades for, I think you're saying really the Republican Party now has the support of Southern racists. Well, I think it's factually true that people who are racist uh, in terms of white racism tend to be tend to find more of a home in the Republican Party than the Democratic Party. I think that's true. I think that political science, public survey, public opinion polls show that. That's not to say the Republican Party is racist today or that it was then. It's just the fact that, and actually racism isn't even really the problem. The real problem is white identity politics. Oh, you're, leaving, you're leaving out Barry Goldwater. I raised a historical point, and, and you, you have an answer because you've, oh. I've seen you write the answer. Okay. That the reason the Republican Party gets associated with opposing civil rights is because Barry Goldwater right. did oppose them. But go ahead. Right, and, and Barry Goldwater had and became concrete, the standard bearer concrete in constitutional and philosophical right. reasons uh, for opposing the Civil Rights Act, but it cannot be avoided... I think if you really study the political science, if you study the political survey data, how parties have realigned and ideologically adjusted over time, that the Republican Party did uh, inherit those Southern Democrats. And the Democratic Party, there were people on the progressive left who actually actively tried to drive them out because they felt that this was, an, uh, uh, this was going to be an drive obstacle. Them out of the Democratic Party. Out of the party. Democratic Party because they saw this as an obstacle to a more left-wing Democratic Party. So these are things that... Uh, that have happened, and again, this is not to say that conservatism is bad or the Republican Party is bad or anything like that, but that I think we have failed to see that, I think the conceit among conservatives has been that we don't believe in identity politics. We're about the individual. It's only the left that engages in identity politics. And I think we've failed to see 
that we conservatives often engage in identity politics too for the America that we look back favorably and nostalgically towards uh, from the 40s and 50s and 60s. John Podhoritz, Donald Trump won the votes of 58% of white voters, 8% of African Americans, and only 29% of Hispanics. You will grant that Dr. Roy has a point. I do grant it, and I think that one of the things that this election revealed was that 40 years of a culture and a political culture on the left, but a culture in general, that has been balkanizing and asserting that the we are not all Americans, but that we are black first, Asian first, Hispanic first, gay first, uh, that, our, that our, our identities are not a, a common thing, but that we are, our, our, our most important coloration is our either tribal or sexual identity, um, turned into a giant case of blowback when the majority uh, in the United States decided that if this was the way things were constituted, then they, they constituted an interest group in themselves. Nobody expected this to happen in that way precisely because whites are a majority in the United States. They make up, what, 72%, 73% of the population. And so the idea was that this was all fine. You could do this forever because, of course, it was their country. It was a country of white people. And, and, and so, um, you know, my, minority pleading was totally fine. What's more, we were told, beginning in 2012 and onward, that uh, this was inevitably in decline, that we were seeing that the demographic changes in the United States meant that at some point in the relatively near future, the uh, white domination of American demographics was going to end, and that, uh, and that in 2050 or something like that, it would be uh, whites would be a plurality, but not a majority. And so in, the inevitability was that the, the Democratic, what uh, David Dinkins, the former mayor of New York, called the gorgeous mosaic of America would be the reality. Well, it turns out that e if that's true, and it may not be true, but if it's true that the majority isn't going to go down without a fight, that, that they've been attacked, they've been, they feel abused, they feel like the country is running away from them, they feel like that uh, all these minority groups are getting special benefits and that they do special pleading, and it's not fair, and now it's their turn. I think it's a horrifying development. But it's understandable. But I think it's A, it's understandable, and B, this is one of those unintended consequences of, of, of the notion that if you, you know, that if you play the victim, uh, you know, that, that, that the, the strength of uh, any minority group's uh, position is enhanced by playing the victim and going and demanding restitution in some fashion or other. That if you do it too much and you spend too much time at it and you, and you change the cultural norms in that fashion, that there are going to be terrible consequences from it. We all thought there were going to be terrible consequences from it, but I don't think that we knew that they would come in the form of a billionaire living on Fifth Avenue who was pretending to be a member Hold of the white underclass. Steve Bannon, now senior counselor to the president, in an interview that he gave shortly after the election, quote, if we, by we he means Trump and Trump's movement, if we deliver, we'll get 60% of the white vote and 40% of the black and Hispanic vote and we'll govern for 50 years, close quote. In other words, the way to expand the GOP is to make America great again. Create jobs, control the borders, forget all the nonsense about playing a role in 
the globe and put American interests first, and you appeal not just to white America. What's striking here is that Steve Bannon is saying, we're not trying to appeal just to white America. You appeal not just to white America, but to African Americans, Hispanics as well, and you can put together a new governing coalition. Surprisingly enough, the way out of the problem that Ovik Roy identified is being shown to us by Donald Trump. Look, I hope that's true. I hope that Steve Bannon is right, and I hope that Donald Trump is right. And by the way, I, we have to give the, uh, President Trump credit for one thing. He actually slightly, according to exit polls, outperformed Mitt Romney in 2012 in terms of his performance with minorities. I think he, he outperformed Mitt Romney by about 1% or 2% with blacks, Asians, and even Hispanics. Mm -hmm. so, so all that to his credit. You know, I want to say, uh, going back to what John was saying, I agree with about 90% or 80% of what John was saying. I think you know, there are excesses. That's a good day. Yeah, well, you know, well, most people would, I tremble. I tremble to disagree with John at all, uh, but, but, but I, I, will, I will make this one, one additional point, <coughs> perhaps, to what John was saying, which is, it's true that there are excesses on the left in terms of identity politics and things like that, and, and I think we all, as conservatives, uh, rebel against that or, or, or recoil from it. But I, I find that sometimes we've, we've kind of taken the opposite view, that because the left gets so annoying with political correctness that uh, saying gratuitously inflammatory things that don't recognize the real struggles that blacks in particular have had in America is okay. Uh, that we shouldn't we should diminish and 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 ignore the history and the struggle the real struggle that uh, particularly southern blacks experience in this country not just during the era of slavery but during the 20th century as well and, and I really wish that if, if we as conservatives while we reject the left-wing approach to identity politics if we if we invested as much time rejecting that and being annoyed by it and being put upon by it to study actually what happened to blacks in places like Texas and Alabama and Mississippi, let alone in New York and Michigan, uh, we'd have a perhaps a more balanced perspective on why a lot of minority people in minority communities uh, uh, align with the Democratic Party the way they do. Because I feel like the Republican Party and the conservative movement have not sufficiently and frequently enough recognized the dignity and the challenge that it's been uh, to be black in America in a way that I, we really ought to. I, I, I really believe that. I don't feel that. John, I, don't feel, you I take mean, that. look, you and I are in an interesting position here because you're a member of a minority, and so am I. I'm Jewish. You're you're of Indian descent, so we we. Which sit, means I'm just going to sit here and watch the two of you. Yeah, yeah. So. I, you're, I left you out of this because <laughs> you know. So I, I mean, the point is that you know, I, not much of it. You may not feel to people as though someone who looks like me, and therefore you know, a cop isn't going to pull me over, let's say, or something like that, is that much of a minority. But I'm part of a you know, my my group is two percent of the of the population of the United States, and um, I've never I feel as though the uh, it, it may well be that Republicans, particularly over the last maybe ten or fifteen years, have gotten fed up with the idea that they're ra being called racist and that they're racists and, and that having, having spent, you know, they feel like they've spent 30, 40 years, um, you know, supporting or, or, or promulgating or, or advocating for policies that would be of great help to the poor and to minorities and those policies have been rejected by the poor and minorities and by their representatives. Um, even though uh, they would they would lead to uh, they would they would help uh, people emerge from their immiseration, um, but I I do I, I think that something's happened over the over the last ten years. But I think that our experience experience of Jews in the United States certainly and Jews of course are not Republicans by any means or conservatives by any means 
is an example that when it comes to minorities in this country as opposed to every other country on earth, minorities are, you know, are paid enormous respect. Public policy centers to an extraordinary degree on helping people who are less fortunate achieve a better aim. I don't think it works. Mostly it doesn't right. work at all and sometimes it has a terrible consequence. But the notion that both the conservative movement and the United States in general doesn't care enough about minorities to help is completely, uh, that notion is completely undone by the history of the last 50 years. So I'll disagree, the way the I'll disagree with you in a couple works. of ways. Again, another yeah. question. Again, and I tremble to do it, but uh, I think there's a distinction between immigrants to the United States, who I agree have had a lot of success, and that's one of the great things we should celebrate about America, and the experience of people who are brought here in chains, who I think have had a very different experience. You know, I think the conservative movement has not done enough to confront that history uh, and in ways that would allow us to, again, recognize the dignity of the experience that they've had. And, I, and that's not to say that we... are talking about African Americans, but that does not explain the let's say the the rise in the minority consciousness of latinos and hispanics who were not brought here in chains right. and who are, don't have that experience and yet also have interest groups and demand affirmative action demand special rights and and, 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 and i'm agreeing with you there okay, I, that's I just I that's okay. yes but but i, I do I will, think the black me, I want to make experience point, is a special case yeah. i want to make one point because I, I i do actually after all have a seat at the table i want to make one point and then move on to another another question it, the specific figures have escaped me now, which is unfortunate because I like to be as specific as possible. But during the Reagan economic expansion, there was a period of about five years when the ethnic group, which was most benefited, which was moving up the most quickly economically, was African Americans. The policies of this conservative disproportionately benefited African Americans. All right. Final item here, Americans have, you pointed this out, I saw this in a tweet of yours, Americans pointed them, have sorted themselves out geographically to a remarkable extent. Liberals on the coasts, conservatives in Texas and in the center, and according to an article in 538 to which John brought my attention the other day, quote, more than 61% of voters cast ballots in counties that gave either Clinton or Trump at least 60% of the majority party vote. That's up from 39% of such voters in 1992 an accelerating trend that confirms that America's political fabric geographically is tearing apart. Close quote. Republicans and Democrats now hold different values, read different newspapers, and live in different places. This, John has used the word balkanization. 538 talks about the political fabric ripping apart. This is something new in the post-Cold War, post-war experience for this nation. Does it compromise the American experiment? How can you govern when half the country loathes Barack Obama and now half the country loathes Donald Trump and really feels it viscerally? Well, especially when you have a federal government that's trying to impose a one-size-fits-all solution that's central, okay. then that, that's what creates the even more polarization because people feel their fates are not determined locally, they're determined by a central government. So that's a big problem. But one thing I want to point out about about that uh, the, those statistics that you just cited, right. I mean, we're sitting here taping this show uh, on the campus of Stanford University. Within 20 miles of where we're sitting is the most dynamic entrepreneurial place in the world where the freest economy is generating enormous innovation. But yet, within 20-mile radius, if you polled how many, what percentage of the, the people voting here were Republican, it'd probably be 5%, 10%. 
right? So whatever the number is, uh, I, I think that we, um, we, we oversimplify when we describe conservative and liberal uh, and, and, and assign those to these voting categories of the, of the people who are voting Democratic and Republican. In fact, there are new schisms in both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. In the Democratic Party, it's between the progressive left and the managerial elite represented like, by places like Silicon Valley. And on the right, it's Say that again. Repeat that. that that's interesting. The that, progressive left and the managerial elite. Okay. So people so Bernie like Bernie versus Hillary. Yeah, got it. Got Bernie, it. Okay. Bernie, Bernie versus okay. Hillary. Okay. Exactly. Okay. And on the right, between what we might call the K Street, Wall Street, um, Acela Corridor conservatives, and uh, and a more populist right that isn't actually that oriented towards free markets. They're against free trade. They're against entitlement reform. They're for protection of themselves and using the power of the state to do that uh, in ways that conventional conservatives have not been. So while we've seen this partisan sorting that you've described, mm -hmm. I'm not as convinced that we've seen an ideological sorting. Uh, I think we have perhaps not looked under the surface of who's, who the Republican coalition and who the Democratic coalition are. And I think there are fissures in both. I think we have seen, I think you're right, that the ideological sorting is much more complicated, that the Bernie Sanders voter has more in common with the hard Trump voter when it comes to, say, ideas about trade and banking and the like than, 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 we, than we imagine, and that this, that fissure within those parties may create new alliances over the course of the next 25 years if they're not evanescent. We do have a cultural sorting culture in the broadest sense. What you're describing is not necessarily Republicans and Democrats or liberals and conservatives. You're describing, uh, I think you might say, secular versus religious right. or what people used to call the new class versus sort of like the, the old line Americans or something like that. That, that you, you, uh, th they watch different TV shows. They, they, they're interested in different movies. The Trump voter, made American sniper. You know, the Trump voter is responsible for American sniper. The, you know, the Obama voter or the Hillary voter is responsible for, I don't know, I mean, it's I, I'm trying to think of. Maybe, maybe Avatar or something, <laughs> I don't know. La Land or, you know, I mean, it, so they watch different programs. They have different cultural experiences. We're not in this situation in the 1970s where everybody watched the Mary Tyler Moore show. Right. Um, and, and indeed, indeed, getting to the atomization point, black people watch different programs from white people. Black liberals watch different programs from white liberals. And so there, there, is, there are these um, real cultural separations, whereas 40 years ago there weren't because we all lived in a common so, culture. However, yeah. just to balance that out, there was real regional culture in the United States that is itself now mostly gone. Like real genuine, you know, 1960 or something like that, it meant something much different to be a Texan than it does now. A Texan was a different type Oh, it type still of, means something. I know, you Texans Texan. think so, but you're, it's not real because your town, in 1960, your town has country. the same, your mall has the same 200 stores as the Stanford right. Mall does. Right. That's, that's what I'm talking about. The retail is the same, the food is the same, so, Most all of that, that stuff, the way that we live is not all that dissimilar, but the way we perceive, except for church. The barbecue is much better in Texas. But, oh, fair enough. Oh, okay. And the deli's <laughs> better in New York, but you still have delis and we still have barbecue. Okay. And, but the way that we perceive how we should live is now entirely different. Kevin Baker, it's a fascinating piece in The New Republic in which he was 
angry piece about, about Red America. And he wrote, it's time for blue states and cities, Democratic, liberal, it's time for blue states and cities to abandon the American national enterprise. Call it the new federalism or virtual secession or maybe blue exit, close quote. Now, Republicans have argued for states' rights and federalism for decades. And it is one of the miracles of our national history <laughs> that on election day, Democrats woke up opposed to states' rights and in favor of ever greater concentrations of power in Washington and went to bed that night with a new respect for states' rights. Oh, yeah. So, so Not question, just states' rights, judicial activism. Judicial, so the question mm -hmm. I have here is whether all of this balkanization, oh, which the, I have to and say... And the perfection of the Constitution. That's right, the right. other thing. Yes, exactly. Suddenly they are, you know, James suddenly they're all, yes, they're all Neil Gorsuch. And now yes. Russia is the number one geopolitical threat exactly. in the world. So, so. so is, this, is this actually in some way... Good news, Republicans don't want that much federal government, and now Democrats are having second thoughts about the federal government. Can we get some reinvigoration of, of, of regional power, of states' rights, of federal, nah, you don't buy it. Nah, because yeah. it's a, nah, because the whole I'm point of this. I'm trying to give you a cheerful note here. No, because John. the whole point of this is the, is the delegitimation of Donald Trump. Now, I'm no Trump fan, and I, you know, and I have great problems with him, but you know, you win an election fair and square, and and you get to be president, and that's how it works. And I didn't like Obama, and Obama got to be president, and I wasn't one of the people standing around saying that he wasn't a legitimate or he wasn't an American or anything like that. And I don't like when I didn't like when my side does it, and I don't like when their side does it. And that's all part of this atomization that they cannot accept a result that they do not like. I mean, and if somebody said, if somebody not, said, I do not accept the results of the Super Bowl, everybody would laugh at them. You know, you can't do it in sports, so why can you do it in the most important thing in life? I'm looking at the Texan at the table. What, one fundamental, well, you know what I would say is, is one fundamental difference between the hard left and the hard right, or ideological progressives and ideological conservatives, is ideological progressives are very results and outcomes oriented. They'll adopt whatever argument is necessary to achieve the outcome, the policy outcome that they want. Whereas conservatives will say things like, well, the Constitution forbids this, and therefore it doesn't matter what the policy outcome is, the Constitution forbids it. Uh, and, and that fundamental difference is that so it results in the kind of discussion we're just having. So, oh, it's great. Progressives care about federalism, so maybe we'll have some allies. No, but no, because at the end Only of the day, they get what they yeah, want. We, we are willing to say, conservatives are willing to say, if federalism leads to bad policy outcomes in California, we're okay with that because we believe in federalism. Whereas progressives would say, no, it's the policy outcomes that we want to avoid. So we won't, de we won't devolve things to the states because we don't want to allow bad policy outcomes in Texas. So and you're both pretty, pretty pessimistic, basically. Yeah, about that anyway, about, about okay. making the left uh, so and seeing the, the error of their ways. Yeah. We're, talking about, we're <laughs> talking about the nature of the country. We're talking about the future of the country. I have a question for you. <clears throat> John is the father of three children. Six months ago, you became the father of one of your son. If the answer to this is no, just say so. But do you find that fatherhood, fatherhood, this ancient experience, that fatherhood affects the way you do your job as a journalist, as an intellectual? Does it affect the way you think about the country? Does it affect the way you feel about this country? John? Yes, but in odd ways. Uh, the oddest way is that I have spent, my oldest is 12 and a half, and I've spent most of her life shielding her from politics and the news and my children who are younger because 
having on. You're like a mafia don. You don't want the kids to know what you do for a living. No, I'm I, having on a television that has on a newscast. Will raise will compel them to ask me questions about the nature of evolving politics and morality that I have not wanted to have to bring up with them. I, as it happens, do not want to, did not want to discuss transgenderism with my daughter when she was seven and there was a picture of a transgendered person on the cover of the New York Times Magazine. I have very strong feelings about it. I won't go into it here. But I did, not want to, I did not want to exert my feelings on her about this issue one way or the other. I just did not want to have it addressed. So as a journalist and a parent, one of the things that I am most unhappy with about the development of my business is the fact that it no longer views itself as having a responsibility to help parents keep their children's innocence as long as possible, which was indeed a very important part of the general sense of media responsibility in this country when we were children. Yes, it and it is total, it's not only is it gone, some of this is actually defiantly on purpose. You need to have these conversations that you don't want to have, so we will force them upon you. And that to me is how uh, my children are in a state of greater innocence and lack of knowledge about the, what is going on in the world than I was certainly at their age and that I would have expected them to be. I'm too new, uh, new as a father to have the insights and reflections that, that John has. Um, I do dread sending my child to schools in this country for the reasons that you've described. I have no idea how I'm going to have. If it was hard to have these conversations today or even 10 years ago, how am I going to have them in 2027? I have absolutely no idea. Uh, but I will say this, uh, Peter, that fatherhood, parenthood in general is an incredible joy. It's a responsibility, but it's an incredible joy. And um, I think the thing it has done more than anything else in terms of changing anything about me is it's made me happier. Um, I was always a pretty happy guy. I'm a temperamentally happy guy, I like to think, uh, as conservatives go. But, but there really is an incredible joy to, to parenthood. And, and I worry that we're living in a country where not as many people realize that, that parenthood is a joy. If you look at the, that, uh, the, the number of people, in, in, particularly in married families, who are having children in that conventional nuclear way, it's, it's declining. Uh, in Europe, we're seeing few, the rates of childbirth are going down. It's happening in the United States as well. Because a lot of people don't see that. They don't see the joy of parenthood and, and childhood uh, the way that, that many of us do. And, and, I, and I feel sad for them, because certainly for myself, it's brought a lot of joy to my can life. I, can I add to this? Because I think you know, there's also another part of this cultural, odd cultural message that has come down in the last 15 to 20 years is quite the opposite of what you say, that parenthood is a horrible experience. You get no sleep, and your children are this, and they're annoying, and they, they get ADD, and you have to give them Ritalin, and your marriage blows up, and you never have time for each other, and you're both working, and it's also horrible. And if you are, you know, if you're a sort of culturally literate person around the age of 19 or 20 or 21, I think you look at the advance into adulthood. You may look, you, your children at that age, so you may know better than I, you might look at this with a certain level of horror, that, that these, the thing that people wanted to be throughout most of history was older. They didn't want to be kids. They wanted to become adults. They wanted to have adult, get out of their parents' house, have their own, have a wife, have children, have a husband, have children, have a home, have a family. And now, much of the cultural messaging of the sort of liberal elite is about how they don't tell you the truth about it, which is that it's a hard, hard and terrible. So John, thing. You're, talking, you're talking about the hostility 
of American popular culture to family formation and to the innocence of children, yeah. which sounds a lot like, we have a friend called Rod Dreher who has a book now out now called The Benedict Option in which he argues that Christians, this, this, this part of the argument won't apply mm -hmm. to you, my, my elder brother in the faith, but the Christians should withdraw, that politics is lost in this country. So do you feel, do you, but you don't feel any impulse to withdraw. None at all. I'm so, so I mean, of course I feel the, I mean, you I, feel an everybody feels the impulse to withdraw from things that annoy them or, and you say, I shouldn't have to have to deal with this. But withdrawal is not an option. I mean, you know, we need to be in there fighting the good fight and not allowing. You don't feel like no. a Roman senator in about the year 400. Say, yeah, I really, you know, uh, Junius and, uh, and Pluto, it's all over. Can we've I done, we've my, done the best we could and it's over. It was my a major, lovely run, but it's done. My major thought experiment is this. You're, there's an unborn child up in heaven and God says, it's 2017, and God says to the unborn child, okay, you can pick, there are 204 countries in the, in the world, you can now pick which one you're born in. What country would that unborn child pick? Child would, wouldn't pick China? No. You would still pick the United States. And so the notion of ceding the country to the pe people who are arguing things and fighting for things that, that I don't believe in, that I think are inimical, I think we're the opposite of a lost cause. I want to pick up a, a phrase that you is, mentioned. This is my friend John. You say to John, John, do you feel defeatist? And John says in various, in very sophisticated ways, what he's really saying is, hell no, I feel like fighting even harder. Yeah. That's John. Ovik? You used a phrase that I think is very important, popular culture. It's popular for a reason. I think sometimes we don't confront that. There is no law preventing me from reading Plato's Republic uh, as a bedtime story to my six-month-old. There's no law preventing me from playing Bach over my stereo system rather than Beyonce. People can and have the choices in terms of what culture uh, they raise their children with. Yes, schooling and other uh, in influences are there, but we still have a lot of agency in how we raise our children. And I think too often we surrender that agency and say, well, Hollywood is this, and, and CBS said that, instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to expose my children to the things I want them to encounter in this world. John Podhoritz, editor of Commentary, Ovik Roy of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Thank you. Thanks very much. For Uncommon Knowledge and the Hoover Institution, I'm Peter Robinson.